And so within that context, we were working on disease exposure preventions, which on a you know everyday basis, we deal with things like tuberculosis and meningitis and influenza, you know, a whole, whole litany of diseases. And so within that context, of course, COVID-19 came around in, in the early part of 2020. And so it kind of fit right into that same scope where we were already talking about these things in terms of preventative measures and leading indicators and exposure prevention. So when COVID-19 came around, which the, the date stamp is about January 22nd was the the first time I had gotten asked to come to the, the incident command system where we were standing up for that. And we started working specifically on the COVID-19 response. Our mission and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that when implemented will improve our safety, our environment, and how we govern our business. We are making the world safer, and we're going to have fun doing it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mission Zero podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Peoples. Uh, we are recording today in the Fletcher Azul Tequila studio. And as my guest today, I have Corey Warden, the City of Houston Safety Advisor. Uh, Corey has a Master of Science in Occupational Health and Safety from Columbia University and a PhD from Capella University. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, I've um, wanted you to come on uh, for a myriad of reasons. You know, obviously, the topic for the past year has been COVID, 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 and you're kind of the have has been the the Houston's front man for the, 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 this charge and how to handle it and how to test for it and, and how to, you know, precaution the city and all of its myriad of departments on, you know, how to prepare and how to deal with this. And, uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you before we, before we dig into this, how's your family doing? I know you had, had a little bit of a sickness with there with them. Oh, they're, they're doing a lot better. Thank you. Good, it's, good. Thankfully it's not COVID-19. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So, uh, first of all, just a little bit, if you don't mind, for our audience, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your, your, you know, your background, what led you here, and some of the things you've done in the past, and a little bit about your uh, current position. Sure, sure. Thank you. So, kind of the the short version is about 17 years ago, um, I had graduated from University of Houston, and just within a matter of weeks later, I joined the Air Force. It was, you know, shortly after. 9-11 and the Iraq invasion. And so I went into the Air Force under the emergency management career field. So what that means is the first couple of years I was in counter chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear response. And then from there, I went into emergency management, you know, proper, if you will, which is emergency operations center and doing um, emergency management planning, training, logistics, all the, all the type of things that FEMA does, except within the military context. And so when I finished my enlistment, which was in 2009, um, I stayed for another year as a, as a DOD contractor. And then after that, I came back here to Houston and went into um, safety, health and environmental, kind of a, kind of a tangent from, from what I had been doing, more related to the, the counter sea burn, more so than the emergency management, which, you know, in the civilian world, emergency management's it's, its, own, its own construct separate from, from safety, which is interesting as to what I'm doing now. Um, so from there, I went into safety. I was a safety coordinator under manufacturing and construction. And then from there, I actually went to the city uh, in 2011. And at that time, I was working with public works, engineering and parks and recreation and the library system. And then I was recruited by Memorial Hermann in 2013. So I went to Memorial Hermann for five years. Um, then in 2018, um, I actually stepped away for, for a little bit. I had some 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 personal illnesses and some some family tragedies. And so I spent been a year doing, you know, advocacy work with National Safety Council and ASSP and AOHP, a lot of work there, a lot of writing and a lot of uh, leadership with, with regions and divisions. And then in 2019, um, I, I reapplied to go back to the city and thankfully they, they took me back. And so I went to work there and this time I was assigned to the health department. 
probably because I had a lot of experience with Memorial Hermann, so healthcare goes into public health well. And so I got back over to the health department and immediately began working on our safety management and continual improvement. So we were working on continuity with the safety committee, making sure our hazard analysis was updated and everything was comprehensive, putting the hazard controls and the needs assessment in place, communication program, um, developing leading indicators, getting all of those things formalized and proactive, developing metrics around that, all the lagging indicators, all the rates and metrics, and of course, working on improvement with uh, analyses and going from there. And so within that context, we were working on disease exposure preventions, which on a you know everyday basis, we deal with things like tuberculosis and meningitis and influenza, you know, a whole whole litany of diseases. And so within that context, of course, COVID-19 came around in in the early part of 2020. And so it kind of fit right into that same scope where we were already talking about these things in terms of preventative measures and leading indicators and exposure prevention. So when COVID-19 came around, which the, the date stamp is about January 22nd was the, the first time I had gotten asked to come to the the incident command system where we were standing up for that. And we started working specifically on the COVID-19 response. Um, then shortly after that, the Office of Emergency Management had started putting together subcommittees to work on the same the same situation. And so I began working with them as well. And that kind of put me in touch with a lot of different people and a lot of different departments. So we were working on all the different processes and the way that the pandemic factored into the operations of of all the departments within the city. Um, so then from that point, you know, it became, there's the, there's the entire emergency management construct tied into what I do. Um, so I kind of became the, the safety officer in a lot of respects. And then that led into our testing operations, which started with with mass testing at the at the stadiums. And then from there, it went into community-based um, strike team testing, if you will, targeted testing. And at the same time, we were working on a lot of different partnerships and a lot of different contracts with a lot of different providers that are still around the city working on the same issues. And then from there, we went into doing a lot of a lot of work and a lot of advocacy with different organizations, a lot of external organizations, so that we could help with with planning and prevention and and long term uh, recovery in terms of reopening businesses and and getting things to where we could do events and things of that nature safely. And of course, all of those things tie into the same level of preventative measures. And so we were getting things to where they could be done as safe as we possible. Um, and then that, of course, transitioned into um, the vaccinations, which started in December of 2020. And we're working on that, as you know, as you know, hugely right now. So we have a lot of very large vaccination sites uh, up to the NRG Stadium, where that's a, that's a partnership between the health department with the city, the Harris County Public Health, the DOD, which is the U.S. Air Force, is a lead on that. There's a there's an entire wing of of airmen over there. And a lot of good things happening there, along with the other vaccination sites around the city. So, all these things kind of kind of tie together in a in a way. So it's really exciting, and in terms of being able to really put a dent in the pandemic and try to you know try to get out of that as, as safely as possible, and and prevent any unnecessary well, they're all unnecessary, but prevent exposures, and uh, you know absolutely prevent loss of life. So we've, we've done a lot of work on that, and we'll we'll continue to. So that, that's kind of the short version of how it all how it all tied together. Um, just a couple things for my due diligence. Um, I, I appreciate the nice intro. Uh, I actually I have a, a master of science at Columbia Southern University. Um, and, okay. Uh, okay. And uh, my my PhD is actually um, all but dissertation. My my dissertation is complete, but I, I can't claim to have processed it because my my degree plan actually got canceled by the college. So um, so I've completed all the coursework and my dissertation's done, but it's not it's not stamped. So oh. I just want to make sure I put that out so nobody. Think I'm telling fibs. Oh no. Well, you know, that was me that told it. But uh but we'll consider it we'll consider it a done deal on this show. But uh, um, so right around March 15th, almost a year ago to the date, uh Judge Hidalgo put this uh I think it was shelter in place order in. Uh you know, you kind of revealed just a second ago you guys were already working, like the teams were already there a full almost two months beforehand. Um, early on in the, I guess in the early stages, you know, you, again, you revealed to me just a few minutes ago that you had worked on disease prevention and things before. So this wasn't entirely a new thing for you. But early on, where were you getting your information to make 
judgment calls? Is it was it entirely the CDC or did you use other sources? Well, at the beginning, you know, the information was coming from CDC for sure. And then as we started to work on it at a, at a local level, you know, there becomes a matter of, you know, intelligence and data collection at the local level through epidemiology and different different forums with the city and the county. So, you know, beginning beginning, you know, February and March, that's where we really started to started to um, formulate a lot of intelligence and a lot of data locally. Can you tell a little bit, little bit how you did that? And the reason I ask is because, you know, I read the city of El Paso kind of came to, had, had a, did a really good job of this and traced their, or, or I guess where their infections were coming. And they came up that it was a, mostly from grocery stores, you know, and, and I guess the reason I'm asking you some of these questions is I won't politics-free information. Uh, you know, this is a world where people listen to their favorite, you know, provocateur that's going to, is trying to incite them, not give them valuable information. So I'm glad to have you on to be able to dispel some of these things and to be able to, to speak straight truth without an agenda. Um, so in your intelligence, did you did you guys ever discover the spread around the city? What was, what was the, I guess, what was the most prominent reasons for spread in Houston? Well, you know, to be to be completely honest, um, that would really be a, a question better answered by the by the epidemiology team. Um, you know, in my in my lane of the other operations, you know, what we do is, you know, we determine based on the risk assessment, which is based on you know frequency and severity, which honestly hasn't changed a lot. Um, you know, it's for in terms of frequency, we base that on um, you know CDC national and global data, and then local collection of through testing and hospital information. So we do get a lot of information from the local hospital systems and then we collect data through our testing. And then from there we can figure out what the frequency looks like and we can figure out what the severity looks like in terms of, you know, a combination of factors that epidemiology deals with and also in terms of, um, you know, in terms of deaths and in terms of hospitalizations. And then they do contact tracing as well, which happens through epidemiology with the health departments. And so from that, you know, we're able to figure out what the risk assessment looks like. And then that tells us what we need to do in terms of prevention. And so then with the preventative efforts, you know, we base that on hierarchy of controls and best practices. So to your point, as far as, you know, apolitical information, and that's a huge thing with me is I, um, I'm, I'm always an advocate that, that safety is definitely not a political issue. It's, it's always a matter of, you know, there's a hazard and there's a hazard control. And then the idea is to you know, methodologically prevent exposures and injuries and illnesses. So within that, you know, we're able to look at that, you know, first and foremost, if we want to eliminate as much of the risk as possible, then that would be preventing congregations. And so we do that as much as we can within feasibility. And then from there, the next step, of course, is substitution, which unlike a chemical, you know, the example I always use is, you know, back in the 70s, you know, benzene was used as a solvent. And then we realized, well, I wasn't alive then, but we collectively, you know, people realized that, you know, benzene caused leukemia. And so we realized that other solvents would do the same job without the risk of leukemia. So as I substituted in the terms of a virus, you know, it doesn't serve any purpose. So the idea is that we want to eliminate the exposures. Um, so the only thing that would count as far as substitution would be if we're talking about, you know, replacing the the virus with the antibodies and the vaccines, but the vaccine didn't come around till December of 2020. So then it goes into the engineering controls, which would be, you know, having good ventilation, air, air changes, circulation, air filtration, you know, MERV 13 filters, all that good stuff. And then we can put barriers between people to block the droplets and create distance between people. If we can't do that, then we go to the administrative controls, which is going to be the, the um, capacity limits so that we're preventing uh, large numbers of droplets in the air. Then we can go to the face covers, which is going to be, you know, a couple different levels there. The The intent is to contain the droplets so there's not so many floating around. Um, so you have your generic face cover, uh, like the one I was wearing when I came in. And then, of course, you have surgical mask, which the idea there is that it contains the droplets, but to a level that's acceptable by the FDA. If you have an FDA-approved surgical mask, kind of like if you're doing surgery, you know, a doctor wears an FDA-approved mask to limit, you know, limit the potential of a infection transfer in the OR, things of that nature. Um, and then from there, you have your your N95 respirator, which is a level of PPE. So that's one thing we always made sure that people understood was 
the difference between source control, which is your face cover and your surgical mask, and the difference between that and a PPE, which is a respirator in 95, which is actually governed by, you know, 1910.134, the respiratory protection standard. Um, then we have, of course, the um, source control. Then we go to a hand hygiene, disinfection. Um, and then, of course, the administrative controls, things like avoiding touching the face and um, setting up contamination control zones. So we have, you know, hot, hot zones, warm zones, cold zones. Same thing we do for a hazmat incident. And then we can set up regulated medical waste and bio waste uh, disposal to keep things for good contamination control. And then, of course, the last step of that is PPE for the responders. So for the people that absolutely have to be within the six feet for more than 15 minutes over 24 hours of someone who's potentially infectious. And then we go to the PPE, which would be the respirator to protect the respiratory tract and the breathe inhalation of the droplets. Then we've got the gloves, nitro gloves or latex, if there's no allergy, to keep the droplets off the hands, which lessens the chance of them ending up in the face, mouth, eyes, or nose. Um, then from there, we have the uh, isolation gowns to keep the droplets off the clothes, especially when the clothes are going to be worn home. You know, it keeps the droplets from ending up in the car and then the house. Um, then the last thing would be things like eye protection or, or shoe covers, basically anything that keep the droplets off the person. So going down that methodology, you know, what it does is it explains how it, it's definitely not a situation where, you know, if, if you belong to this train of thought or this political party, you believe in this, it's, you know, these things exist to serve a purpose to prevent exposures each in their own way. And that's also why it's so important where a lot of times there was a misconception where people would feel like, you know, if they do one control, that's good enough. But the intention is that, each of those controls serves a different purpose, whether it's to, you know, limit the amount of droplets or to contain the droplets or to keep the droplets off the face or off the hands. So when we implement those things systematically, then it systematically reduces the risk. Um, so we were working on all those things. But unfortunately, it did get political for a lot of people. And, and they, you know, they're going to go online and read things and there's a lot of misinformation. So I guess I'll start with the masks because that will concern most people more than, you know, the surgical gowns and, you know, the medical professionals. The masks, you know, there's a lot of do they actually work? What kind of mask actually works? And and that's a question out there. So, you know, we you know, I understand it is, you know, the N95 is obviously a completely different thing. It's a like you said, it's an FDA approved. It's for doctors. It's for people, medical professionals with, that's got to be within that six foot range for a, a extended period of time. How how effective are homemade masks or cloth masks are these things? Are they, did you, do y'all, do you guys, have y'all determined that it was effective enough or, you know, I guess that's the question people want to ask these, you know, they are, a lot of people are under the impression that cloth mask isn't, it doesn't even work. It doesn't even stop the droplets. Pose that question to you. Sure. It's a great question. So there's, there's really two answers to it. The first one is in terms of, in terms of the need for it, you know, that's the important part is that it's it's separate from protection. So the first thing we always impart to people is that the the cloth mask, especially, you know, and, and even the surgical mask, even if it's approved by the FDA, you know, those don't serve as protection. So you, if you're wearing one of those, if you're within the six feet, especially if within six feet for more than 15 minutes over 24 hours of someone who's potentially infectious, it's not going to protect from, from, from the, from the exposure. So that's the important part there is it only serves as source control. So when we say source control, it just contains that person's droplets and it's not, it's not fitted. You know, there's no fit test. So it's not going to contain, you know, up to 95% of down to 0.3 microns like an N95 would. Um, so the intention there is that it only serves as a, you know, a loose fitting cover just to contain droplets. And so within that context, it is effective. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of peer reviewed studies, you know, clinical, scientifically based studies. Um, I actually just read another one the other day. Um, I don't remember the source right now, but I can certainly send it to you offline. Sure. Um, so it's, it's definitely effective. And then of course, for the same reason, you know, double masking, it serves to, you know, contain that many more just because you're putting an overlay over it. So um, in it, in its own right, for its own reason, it does serve a purpose. So it is very important. And then, on the second side of that coin, you have your actual protection, which is where you get into the N95. And that's the other thing we always impart is that for those people that need an N95, even though it's, you know, it's N95, it's not like an air purifying respirator or a, um, a SCBA or, you know, anything of that nature where it's, you know, more durable medical equipment. Um, we're talking about, you know, a filtering face piece, disposable respirator. 
but because it's intending to filter out those droplets, that's why it's so important that we have the respiratory protection program, which is going to be the medical questionnaire. Reason being is, you know, it's unlike the face cover where there's also a lot of misconceptions there that the face cover is going to affect the airflow. You know, people feel like it, it yes, inhibits absolutely. their breathing. Um, scientifically or clinically, it doesn't. Um, now, of course, some people do have... Psychologically, ADA. it does sometimes. That's true. That's yeah. true. And uh, there's also, you know, I, there are ADA accommodations and things of that nature. So it's not unheard of that people can't wear a face mask or face cover. But um, generally speaking, the face cover doesn't, you know, impact the breathing like a respirator does. And so with a respirator, because it does impact the breathing, that we want to have that medical questionnaire. So that if somebody has something like claustrophobia or a heart condition or respiratory distress, anything of that nature, then we can avoid, you know, putting someone in danger by putting something on their face. It's going to inhibit the airflow. Um, and then the second thing is because it's doing that, we want to make sure that person has training on, you know, what the respirator is and why it's important. And then they're able to get the fit test so they know that it's going to properly filter those droplets uh, or particles, I should say, you know, down to 0.3 microns, 95% of them as it should. So, um, if somebody's using that as protection, then that, that entire respiratory protection program is important. Otherwise, it may not do the job and it could be a, a false sense of security. Can you explain a little bit uh, in more details, I guess, more, in more in layman's term terms, uh, the, the word droplet? Because I think non-medical people, when they hear that word, they're literally thinking of a raindrop. Yeah. And we're not talking about that here. We're talking about something that can't be seen Without a microscope, correct? In a lot of cases, yeah. I mean, it's in some cases it may be, you know, like we would say, you know, saliva or, or spit. Mm. Um, but uh, in, in many cases, it's it's very small, like you said, down you know micron sized droplets. And that's actually interesting you say that because that was a source of contention very early on, because originally in the very you know the very early stages of the pandemic. The original context was they say droplet precautions, and if you're in a healthcare setting, there's a big difference between droplet precautions and airborne precautions. So if you're talking about droplet precautions, that's where you're talking about you know source control, surgical masks, and if you're talking about airborne precautions, that's where you're talking about micron-sized droplets, you know, isolation rooms and things of that nature, um, things that are aerosol-producing, mm -hmm. like a like a bronchoscopy or something of that nature, and um, so when that started to shift, you know, around March to April of 2020, it went from those, you know, droplet precautions where there were a lot of organizations early on that, you know, as per the CDC advice, unless they were doing aerosol producing procedures, then they were using, you know, surgical masks. Um, and then it became, okay, we need to go to, if people are going to be in that risk group, they need to be using a respirator and then everybody else needs to be using the face mask. And so it kind of started to create this kind of transitional phase between droplet precautions and airborne precautions. And, um, you know, 2020 hindsight, I, I feel like that that may have confused a lot of people back in that phase. And um, well, I, I think would, one thing that certainly threw the public off and gave fuel to the fire of the of the anti-maskers uh, was the the federal government coming out and saying no, you don't need these masks early on? And, we, and look, I get it. You know, if you if you, they had to do that because we were obviously extremely limited supplies because China had hoarded them all and they were manufacturing all of them and they had hoarded them all for their own country. So we didn't we didn't have them and uh, we had to save them for our medical people because we can't let them get sick, right? I mean, everything, you think it's a disaster, wait till we have no one to be able to take care of these people and then it's really the worst disaster possible. So I get it. Um, about the spread, um, early on, it, it seemed... Uh, you know, skin contact, you know, washing the hands was, was the most important thing and, and, and getting the correct, um, the correct antibacterial to use and things like that. And, you know, I heard some, a lot of different advice, a lot of different things on how to do it. I have a friend at, uh, at US Amrid uh, that kind of, you know, told me a little bit about this throughout the life cycle of it. And he, um, I guess he was more 
confused early on, or I guess he was more surprised by the unpredictability of this and, and how different it is and how we really didn't know what to expect. And But I guess to get to my question, have we... Have we changed since the beginning on, or how has the knowledge changed of how it how it spreads from more of a touch to more of a airborne thing? Is it more of the droplets in the air, or is it is it you know how much is being transferred by touch? Uh, definitely true, and um, you know there's those those two things, and that's why that those preventative measures are so important. You know, you have the preventative measures that limit and contain the droplets, or or filter them in the case of respirators. And then you have the hand hygiene disinfection that is intended to neutralize or remove the droplets on the skin or on, on common surfaces or things like, you know, pins and elevator buttons and doorknobs. So those two things are equally important for that reason. And, um, you know, I, I always encourage, you know, everyone to look at it practically. So if I'm, if I'm potentially infectious, so if I have COVID-19 and I'm sick, if I come into a room then, you know, there's an equal probability that I'm going to, if I talk, there's going to be droplets that come out of my mouth and nose. Those are going to land on things like, you know, doorknobs and tabletops and things of that nature. And then you've also got the droplets that are going to be on my skin, especially if I don't practice good hand hygiene. So if I sneeze on my hands or anything like that, then I'm going to now secondarily transfer those onto those surfaces. So if I put on the face cover and that's going to contain those droplets, and then I wash my hands or put on gloves. That's going to prevent a number of those droplets from ending up on surfaces. So that, that's really how that kind of boils down. And then same thing as the, you know, the face mask or the respirators. You know, there is data, of course, that shows how those things are transmitted. And that's going back to that conversation about the droplet precautions versus the airborne precautions. That was a big part of that early on was the big message, you know, around February to March, you know, wash your hands, wash your hands. And that stayed important. But then it also became put on a mask and wash your hands for that reason. So I I think that um, it certainly wasn't intentional by anybody, but um, as we kind of went around that learning curve with the virus, you know, it it became obvious, obvious, I shouldn't say obvious, it became evident that, you know, those two things were equally important. And unfortunately, to your other point, unfortunately, some, some people that were looking for that political angle, they took that as, you know, a way to, try to um, find fault in it. You know, sure. they would say, see, I told you, you didn't need the mask, where in reality, it's it's just a matter of the learning curve and, and continual improvement, just like anything with safety. Well, personal opinion, uh, there's nothing, you know, I was in the Army, you know, a saying we always have is, nothing can prepare you for war except war. Nothing can prepare one for a pandemic except a pandemic. And, you know, and unfortunately that's the case. And and I think, you know, on every level we're probably, you know, the citizens were a little too tough on the, on the government because you had to learn as you go as well and do the best you had with the information you had. Um, having said that, what, what do you, what do you think the city, cause that's, you know, that's who you were, the city, what do you think they did well at the beginning and what do you th- wish you could have done better at the beginning in hindsight? Well, I'll, I'll preface this and it's one thing I, I tell everybody who'll listen to me and I, I, I absolutely never blow smoke. You know, I only, only tell the, tell the truth as it, as it appears to me, you know, and, uh, within that, I can say that, um, I've, I've having done, you know, safety for 17 years ranging from, you know, military with things like anthrax and GB and VX, um, all the way to what we're doing now with, with pandemics and everything in between. Um, I've been, I've been consistently impressed with the way the city's handled it. You know, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that from, from your perspective, you know, every conversation we've had, you know, it's been a matter of, okay, well, what, what's the hazard, you know, what's the risk level and what are we going to do to prevent it? And then based on that scientific information, you know, I've never come across anybody who, you know, sometimes in safety, you'll come across people that they'll say, well, you know, we're just going to take that risk. You know, if we'd rather, you know, deal with the consequences than have to worry about the preventative measures. But the the entire journey, you know, every step of the way, I've, I haven't encountered anybody who has taken that approach. It's always been, you know, what's the most effective way we can prevent exposures and, and we're going to do that. And so within that, you know, that has a lot of, a lot of tentacles, you know, it means procurement processes and, um, 
finding people that have PPE when the supply lines are dried out, you know, and figuring out how to get these things and train people and make sure we're following all the regulations and, um, you know, validating these things are being done in real time with operations ranging 669 square miles, you know, a lot of different things going on and everybody's been willing to do that. So I've, I've been very happy about that. Um, not to make it about me, you know, at all, but I've, I've never been put in a situation where we say, you know, here's what we recommend. And we had to, um, you know, had to not do that for whatever reason It's never been that way. So, um, I haven't had to worry about any kind of uh, ethical dilemmas or anything of that nature where I've had those situations elsewhere, I should say. Um, so that's been a, a huge blessing. So within that context, um, things that we've done well, that's, that's the first thing is just the leadership support, you know, um, and it's not a political answer. It's just, um, the leadership we have in place. They've, um, they've been very, you know, transparent, very proactive. And I think that that's a huge thing. You know, they've been willing to listen to the science and, and made the decisions appropriately. So that's definitely a huge plus. And then within that, um, everybody on the team, you know, whether it's a health department working on, you know, testing and vaccinations and epidemiology, or whether it's, um, EMS, you know, providing direct care, our clinicians, police department, doing law enforcement under pandemic conditions, um, procurement, you know, procurement who deals with, you know, strategic purchasing on, this is of course falls into that realm. So they've worked on, you know, finding PPE and respirators when the, you know, the supply lines are dried out and there's issues with, you know, counterfeiting and all kinds of different things that, that have been in the, in the radar. So everybody's just done a great job. And then, um, as far as improvement, it's, um, you know, it's just a matter of, um, just a matter of learning, you know, as effectively and efficiently as we can with the information that we have. So, um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a local situation. I would just say that, um, to your point earlier, you know, in terms of the, the federal response at the time, I, the one thing I, it makes me kind of cringe looking back at it. I really wish there wasn't that, um, dichotomy of perspectives. I wish it, I wish there was, you know, everybody had said, okay, here's the science, here's the unified course of action, and we're all going to attack this the same way. This is um, something I actually just wrote an article about um, for AOHP is that if you look at this in the same lens as you would a hazmat response, you know, we do hazmat responses all the time. So if we had a chemical spill, we would look at it in terms of the first thing is we need a unified decision as far as what the hazard is and what the risk is. So we would say, you know, we have this chemical, it's spilled, it affects these people under this downwind hazard distance. So we're going to implement shelter in place for these people. And everybody agrees on that. There's no question about, well, I don't think the chemical is dangerous or I don't think these people need to worry about it. You know, it's, this is what we're going to do. And that, that information goes out. And then from there, you know, we make sure that based on the risk assessment and based on the chemical, we have the right PPE, the right respirators. So the responders are taken care of. And so then within that, you know, there were situations where the PPE wasn't available or um, there were issues with, you know, counterfeiting or, it, it, you know, in March of 2020, the FDA had to start issuing emergency youth authorizations for, you know, KN95s and things of that nature because there were shortfalls with PPE. Um, then the next step of that, once the responders are taken care of, we figure out, you know, how far the, how far it spread, you know, so in the case of a, a chemical, you know, we would, you know, do detection and put up the cordon and figure out what the situation is there. So that would go into testing. And we had, we had a lot of situations where testing was actively discouraged, you know, at the federal level, unfortunately, whether directly or, you know, by uh, nuance. What do, you, what do you mean it was actively discouraged? Like they just didn't, they were trying to limit the amount of positives in, 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 in the, I guess, public score of information or realm of information? Yeah, there were, there were a lot of statements from the, from the federal level where they would say things like, you know, we think that the only reason that there's so many positives is because there's so many tests. So we want to see people quit getting tested. But the reality of that is that if people quit getting tested, then you we can't don't, trace. Yeah, we, we don't know who's no. sick. We don't know how many are sick. And we don't, we don't have a site picture. So... You know, talking to uh, Mr. Guillory, you know, one of the, I think, most interesting aspects of, you know, w what you do and what you did was the tracing. And that's obviously the key to it, right? And and, and by the way, the city of Houston, or the fourth or fifth largest city in America, and you, you compare it to some of the other 
large cities, yeah, we did do very well. I mean, congratulations to everybody. We did very well. We we continue to. You know, I I, I keep up with the, the you know the the medical centers information daily that comes out. It looks like we're on a really good pace to Im- improvement. So yeah, every every everybody on every level did a good job, but the tracing is the most is very interesting to me because that is you know almost an impossible thing to me to think about so if you could just t- tell a little bit about your methodology there um you know obviously at this point we've moved towards testing right we're getting a little we we have a lot more testing availability at this point for you how did you trace and how did you how did you decide okay we're going to put this kind of testing here because and and one more comment before you answer is I saw everywhere lines. You saw it everywhere. I never saw that here. I don't, I don't know what we did differently here in Houston. I don't know what you, maybe you can speak to that, but you know, other cities, they couldn't get testing here. I never, no one ever had that problem. They were in and out and in a, in a, in a very orderly manner in a very short period of time. So if, if you mind, just talk about how you traced, how you did the contact tracing methodology there. And also, you know, how you went about deciding where are we putting our facilities for testing? Where do we mostly need to put them? Where do they need to be the most? Sure. Well, again, you know, there's, there's a, a certain, you know, a certain width to the lane that I operate in. So um, I can't speak on behalf of epidemiology. I can kind of give a uh, you know, a concept overview as far as what happens there is, you know, as far as testing to your to your first question, the testing started with the with the sites over at um, you know Butler and and Del Mar Stadium back in this back in March of 2020, and so from there, it got rolled out in the same way as we do the vaccinations now. You know, we have the phases. So the first day of testing was first responders. You know, then it went to age groups and medical vulnerabilities, and then it went from there. And thankfully, the testing, we were able to, you know, systematically roll it out in phases so that, to your point, there wasn't a lot of a lot of backlog there. You know, we had we had we had some lines at times, but people were able to come in and get a test, whether at a mass testing site or at a community based testing site, which we're we're still doing. You know, we have four to six sites a week, every week. Um, Great, great testing teams. And so from there, um, that's been a very comprehensive process. And then within that, what they do is they'll gather the information and the data as far as what the tests show and where those where those hotspots are popping up. And then from there, they can target where the next testing sites are going to be and they're able to, to accommodate. So within that, we can figure out, you know, where the trends are and where the, um, where the, uh, you know, that's a good word for it. Where the trends are as far as infections. Is, is there a, um, are you guys just manually evaluating the data or is there some type of algorithm for you guys to figure that out for your team? Mm, well, I, I'm actually not involved in that myself. That the, that's definitely an epidemiology question. Okay. So I, um, yeah, for, for sake of accuracy, I, I probably can't get into that too much, but they're, they're very skilled at what they do and they, they definitely have, um, you know, a number of different, um, different methods of data analysis. And um, are they committed to the, uh, these epidemiologists? Are they committed to the city or are they working somewhere different than the city contracts or are they full-time employees? Uh, epidemiology, there are, um, you know, there's an epidemiology team that's full-time permanent with the health department. Okay. Yeah. And then because of the pandemic, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of team members that are on uh, temporary contracts, you know, health departments done a, enormous amount of hiring in the last year and um, just a just a brilliant job of bringing them on board and making sure that everybody's trained and integrated into the team. Were you involved personally in, uh, I guess, recommendations? You know, it seems the, the, the judge, Judge Hidalgo, made a lot of these decisions or, or almost, I guess, all of them. Were you, were you part of the team that made recommendations to her or, you know, as far as what, what do we shut down? How many people can be in a gathering? What restaurant capacity, et cetera, et cetera? Were you involved in in that? No, that would that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a firsthand thing with me. Um, my role, you know, I would speak with the um, with you know the health department, and then, like we talked about a minute ago, you know, we go through the methodology in terms of hazard controls, and then based on the information that they have in terms of. Um, you know, 
in terms of infection rates and where those things are appearing. And we would go through, you know, here's what we need to do in terms of preventing exposures. And then they would, you know, the, the senior leaders will make those decisions in terms of what needs to be, um, what the recommendations would be in terms of, in terms of closing things or, or limiting capacities and, um, big decisions like, like, uh, stopping the rodeo last year, you know, that that's definitely well above my pay grade. Um, so my role is, is more, more focused on, you know, the tactical level in terms of safety for, for our teams and, and providing advice in terms of plan review for, uh, for our partners. Okay, great. You mentioned earlier, um, earlier there's a, a quite a bit of fraud and uh, I guess with medical equipment and that's to be expected. Uh, you know, we've seen, we've heard stories, everyone's read stories. You know, my company is a PPE manufacturer as well and, and we've run into it is, uh, is a problem for us as well as the scam out there. How big of a problem has that been and, and what warnings, I guess, would you, would you give to the public about certain types of PPE that they need to be aware of? Sure. Well, the big thing is, you know, knowing what you're using and what you're using it for, you know. So one of the big things that came out early on was, like we talked about, you know, the difference between a face mask and a respirator. So if you're, if you're using a respirator for respirator purposes, you know, meaning that you intend it to filter out, you know, micron-sized particles down to 0.3 microns, 95% of them, then, or, or in 95 or in 99, you know, 99% of them, then you want to make sure that you're using a legit 95 respirator. So, you know, of course, the gold standard for that is a NIOSH approved respirator. So when we look at that. Can you real quickly explain to the audience what NIOSH is? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, NIOSH is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. It's a um, it's a um, sub subset or a division of the CDC, Center for Disease Control. And so part of NIOSH's tasking is to is to provide a um, approval process on respirators and and a lot of equipment that's used for for PPE. And they actually and they actually go to manufacturers abroad and approve those facilities, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. All yeah, right. So go ahead. Yeah. What they'll do is, you know, they'll look at the um, the specifications for that respirator and determine that if you make this respirator based on these specifications, then we can validate that it will filter you know, X percentage of particles down to 0.3 microns. And so that that's hugely important. So if you have a respirator that's not NOSH approved, it's a, it's a coin toss if it's going to properly filter those particles. And so if it doesn't, then you'll be exposed and you might have a false sense of security. So that's the first step there. And like we talked about, the challenge became when all those NOSH approved respirators got, got bought up, then people, okay, well, what do we do now? Because we have to be within the risk group, you know, we have, whether it's a paramedic or whether it's a nurse, you know, um, these are people that they have to be in that risk area. So that quickly got back to, back to NIOSH. Um, I, I myself was on the phone with NIOSH for several hours one day, you know, this is before they started issuing emergency youth authorizations, EUAs. And we would say, you know, we have people that they have to do COVID-19 testing, and we're not going to put them out there without a respirator, but we can't get N95s. They're NOSH approved. So we need to know, you know, are these Chinese KN95s, KN95s you know, yeah. they work. And so after much, you know, deliberation, NIOSH put out that emergency youth authorization on a certain amount of KN95s that they had validated to be similar, if not congruent, you know, to an N95 that was NIOSH approved. And so if you can't get the NIOSH approved, then the next step would be the the emergency youth authorization, either K95 or or a number of foreign made respirators. So knowing the difference is very important so that you can validate that it's doing the job it's supposed to. And then the next part of that is that it got a little bit daunting over the course of 2020 and even even now because there were a lot of these what appeared to be a bona fide NIOSH approved N95, like a 3M 1860 you know, which is a fantastic respirator. Um, but there, it became evident that customs was seizing a lot of what appeared to be bona fide NASH approved respirators, but they were counterfeits and the counterfeiters got really good at that. So if you look at the news reports on that, you can see the pictures. 
sometimes you can't tell the difference. You know, they look they look like bona fide NIOSH approved respirators, but what happened was we started calling, uh, I, I say we collectively, the safety community, you know, people all over the country, they would get these they would get these in hand and they would call back to manufacturers, whether it be 3M or or Honeywell or any number of these people that make it 95s. And they would, they would, you know, bounce the lot numbers. Yeah. They bounce mm-hmm. the lot numbers. Yeah. We and, had to do, yeah. And find this out. This is that, all the stuff I experienced yeah. with our company. Yeah. It's been, it's been a, it's been a roadshow. I mean, it, it has been something yeah. else to overcome. And boy, you don't want to be the, the ones to supply the wrong product uh, to someone and it, and it not provide them to, the protection they need. I mean, it's, it was it was a it was a scary time for everybody, right? Um, well, you know, the testing is you know full speed. You may not know the answer to this, or you may not want to comment. But how you know? I know it's gotten better over time. But how accurate are the tests? You know, how often are we getting false positives, false negatives? And I'm, I think that changed over time, right? But early on and now, what? How how often were we getting false positives and, and false negatives? Well, there's there's differences in the in the rates as far as the efficacy with, or uh, I'm sorry, not ac- efficacy, accuracy, mm-hmm. efficacies for the vaccines. Um, mm-hmm. There were there were differences in the rates depending on whether it's the the um, you know the the nasal you know the where they put the Q-tip you know it feels like it's touching your yeah. brain versus the you know the the swab versus the saliva swab. So um, there's differences in the accuracy depending on the test. Uh, and you determined that the the nasal swab was the best test. To to the best of my knowledge, the most accurate is the I can never pronounce it right. It's the the nasal pharyngea. I I I can never pronounce it right, but uh, it's it's the one where they they you know put that Q tip way back in the nasal cavity, yeah. and that that's always been the most effective. Um, of course, the downside to it is you got to have a you know, a trained medical provider to do that so it doesn't harm the patient. Um, and then, of course, the next step would be the the nasal swab. And then I believe the saliva swab is the, the least accurate. But there are data points on that. But um, don't don't quote me on it directly. I don't know. I'm off the top of my head. Did, did the inaccuracies, did you, did you ever have a point where that may have given you the wrong information and you weren't able to, you know, set up the testing properly or it may have skewed your contact tracing methodology at all? Was it, was it ever that bad or was it pretty close? No. And, and again, you know, that, that's definitely not my lane. Um, you know, my job is to, to work on the, you know, the safety protocols and preventative measures for the people that are, that are doing the operations. But um, with it, within my scope of knowledge. I don't, I don't remember any, any issues where any, any false positives or anything was causing issues that would limit our, you know, effectiveness. Good. So moving forward, we get, um, you know, December, it comes, you know, I, I guess if you look at historical comparison, the, the vaccine came at a staggering pace, uh, in which is, again, has led the provocateurs to challenge that and to seek out, you know, of course, any vaccine, there's going to be some people that get sick from it. There's going to be some people that have bad reactions to it, no matter what. And they're going to put a big, huge microscope or a big uh, spotlight on that and say, look, this is what's happening. So you're going to be dealing with that. But vaccines are here. Um, you know, we've got them all over the city. I guess my, my my first question is, how did you how did they go about allocating the vaccine? How did how you know, how, how do we get them here in Houston? What uh, and how did you go about allocating it through the city? Like, I mean, I, and I'm asking that not just geographically, but demographically as well. You know, again, I um that that's definitely definitely outside of my lane. So from what I from what I know, mm-hmm. you know the the allocations, you know from the from the federal and state level, you know down to the cities. From from what I know, that happens, you know, up at the, at the state and federal level, and then in terms of the rollout processes, those phases are determined, you know, I believe at that same level in terms of you know the phase phase one B and phase one A. So they started with the um, first responders and the 65 and up so you, vulnerabilities. The city didn't have any say in that. No, no, that's a, well, that's a macro, you know, federal decision to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. Um, because those things, Oh, actually, you know what? Don't catch me lying. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm not necessarily involved in those decisions. Um, I think there's a, there's a state, um, 
there's a there's a state flexibility, but but once again, don't quote me on that. I I um I don't want to speak to something I'm not entirely knowledgeable of. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the the numbers recently, and it looks like we're at twenty three percent or twenty percent. Texas is right now of uh, you know, and of course we did it in the proper you know the order as you said it come from the federal whoever it did is based on demographics. I kind of I guess I was you know this is a personal opinion. I was a little bit um, indifferent towards. You know, just looking at the peer numbers, and I know that's what you do, and I and I am to a lesser degree that person too. The medical professionals, they were done first. I didn't necessarily agree with that, and you may have an opinion on it. You might not want to have an opinion on it, but I, I kind of disagree with that because it didn't seem like they were number one susceptible or number two have a source of spreading. And I was, uh, you know, me, I'm thinking, should it be the elderly? Because it, you know, if you look at the data. Obesity and, and age, those are the two absolute indicators of what's, you know, what are your culpability if you catch this? And it's like, why didn't it go there first? And I guess, you know, I, I would love to, you to be able to answer that, but it sounds like you, that was not necessarily something you were involved in creating anyway. No, I, I certainly wasn't involved in any of that. Um, that would definitely be, as far as, far as I know, state or federal I can only speculate, you know, in terms of the risk assessment, that would be just based on frequency of exposure. So because you have, you know, medical providers, clinicians or EMS or, you know, people that are working with patients, just the fact that they're more likely to have someone sitting right in front of them that has the virus. So the frequency of exposure is much higher, um, if not to your point, if not the severity, mm-hmm. you know, the severity may be lower. But the frequency is definitely higher, so I can only speculate that's why that that first phase of vaccine rollouts was for the for the responders and the and the medical providers. Were you all involved in the at all involved in the decision making process for like school opening or anything like that? No, no. The, do you do recommend? Do you were you recommending doing recommendations for that? No, we did, we didn't make the recommendations as far as the school openings and closings. My. I, I did have a role in doing school assistance visits. So mm-hmm. we would work with with schools in terms of how to better prevent exposures. So okay. we did a lot of that um, last summer before the fall semester started. And even now we're we're helping out schools. So what we do is, you know, we'll we'll go on campus and look at their setups in terms of um, student counts in the classrooms, distances, barriers, HVAC, uh, ventilation, filtration. We'll look at... Um, the, the nursing, as far as what they can do for for quarantine and for um, PPE for the nurses and respirators and making sure they're protected and then their contact tracing processes. So we'll go through and, you know, do a needs assessment and help them with their with their safety planning in terms of exposure prevention. And I feel like we've been very successful with that. Um, you know, we've, we've worked with a lot of schools and they've all been very, very forthcoming in terms of you know, wanting to know how they can improve and how they can get better in terms of that. And, um, So you, your team essentially had to rewrite the SOP for every, every level of government when they, as they slowly started back to somewhat normality or operations at all. We did, we did a lot of work on that. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it was writing it from scratch in terms of you know, algorithms where if you can do this, then do this. If you can't do that, then do this. And we did a lot of, a lot of peer review and assistance for, for organizations, whether within the city or, or partners, external partners. So, um, the one thing I always say about that is, you know, they were speaking to your point, you know, early on, there were, there were a lot of people that were very frustrated and very upset. You know, they felt like, well, people are telling me that we can't operate or, but what I would always reinforce is, you know, there's very few things that, that absolutely cannot be done. You know, if, if we go through the planning process, we can find a way to do it safely. You know, sometimes it's resource intensive and sometimes it's, you know, personnel intensive, but uh, typically at the end of the day, there's a way to do things safely for most everything. So we, we were, that's one of the things we know we're very proud of is that we were able to help a lot of people find those ways, you know, so they could, they could continue their operations or they could have an event or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, like I know people would call me and um, they would see things like they'd say, well, I saw that they're going to have this, 
whatever it may be, this event here, you know, how are they going to do that without causing a super spreader? And say, well, you know, we, we, we've, we've gone through that and we know that we have a degree of confidence that their plan has enough exposure prevention built into it that, that they can do it safely. So there's nothing that I saw where I would, I would see something and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're doing that. You know, we would, we, we know that they've gone through the due diligence to do it safely. So we're, we're very happy about that. Very good. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the point where, you know, it, it blurs that line between science and politics, right? And a lot of people, yes, the schools have been a big contention because, you know, the people, you know, the, the common knowledge is, well, kids aren't really spreading it. Kids aren't really susceptible to it. So why can't they go back to school safely? And it became a political issue. And, 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 I, and I guess that's part of, you know, why I wanted to talk to you is because I want, you know, I want people to hear an apolitical person give you, you know, give facts instead of, instead of listening to something that might not quite be true. So moving forward, um, we've, you got blasted, you know, the big surprise comes, you have this, you know, this pandemic thrust upon you, you deal with the, the you know, you coming up with a plan, you know, doing the testing, doing the contact tracing, and now we're on the vaccines. My question, and it's been, my question has been for safety managers of private businesses. What are we going to do the next time, you know, this happens? What is our new preparation? What have we learned to help us do better next time? That's a great question. You know, like I was saying earlier, to me, the, the most important thing if this were to come up again or, or when it comes up again, I should say, because, you know, we, we had near misses, you know, we had Ebola in 2014 and um, H1N1, you know, avian flu, you know, there's, there's been a lot of things that could have been what COVID-19 ended up being and COVID-19 could have, could have been worse, you know? So mm. as we look the at original the, estimate was 2 million. Yes, sir. Yeah. Scary. Absolutely. Um, so knowing what we know with the the good and the bad about about this one, which, you know, just for, you know, full transparency, of course, it's not over yet. We're we're still we're still living with it and we're still managing it. I would say the most one of the most in, integral things is that if this comes up on the radar again, you know, pandemic level, then First things first, you know, we've we got to have that unified course of action. You know, we, okay, based on the risk assessment, I always say, you know, and of course this is, it's easy to armchair quarterback things, but I'd say, you know, if I was the president, of course I would say, you know, we, we here's, here's the situation, here's the hazard, here's the risk. Based on this information, we need everybody to, you know, in this case, limit capacities, social distance, face covers, disinfection, hand hygiene, and then for those that are in those risk groups, you know, care providers, EMS, law enforcement, et cetera, here's the PPE requirements, you know, and then we would do what we can to build that production to where we have those things available and accessible and validated, you know, so there's not the issues with, with counterfeiting or dry supply lines. And then from there, you know, make sure that like we we're doing a hazmat, you know, first things first, unified course of action, communication. Was there a unified course of action for the state at all, or was it just, you know, I, I hear you, I hear you on the federal. Uh, I think one of the probably, I guess, primary blocks to that is just simply the way our government is organized. It kind of prevents the federal government, you know, in a, in a lot of cases from mandating things like that. So it is left upon the states. Was there a consistency across the state, or was it pretty much mayor to mayor? Well, sure. Short of speaking outside of my scope, um, I, I can, I'll, I'll just speak to Houston, you know, in, in terms of what I, what I know here, you know, it was, it's very consistent, you know, it's very much, like we said, you know, methodological, you know, here's the hazard, here's the risk level, here's the necessary exposure prevention, and it, it was implemented as such, you know, even now, you know, last week, of course, we had the, the change in the state mandate, and um, it, it took a matter of hours, you know, the city looked at the information and the intelligence and here's the, here's the risk level. We're going to continue with what we're doing. You know, the city has AP 3-39, which is the, the administrative procedure in terms of entering city facilities with, you know, face covers, um, social distancing capacity limits. And so, um, 
you know, everything's been very consistent. There hasn't, there hasn't been pushback on that. You know, I'm not speaking for you, but it kind of seems there is light at the end of the tunnel now for, uh, for this, at least a little bit in some cases. Um, do you see a, a, a point in the near future where you, this is, I guess this would be your opinion, when we can, um, I guess be back perfectly normal when when we when we can when masks aren't really needed even as an opinion like you know you said you should wear a mask even though the the contract you know getting it is gone way down the chances of getting it's gone way down the spread is low and I guess my my, my question is how close are we to complete normality? That that's a great question. I I wish I could answer it. You know, um, I kind of look at it you know, one battle at a time, to be honest. And so within that, you know, we've got to reduce the frequency of exposure and we've got to reduce the severity of exposure. So to do that, that would require frequency would be, um, you know, continued exposure prevention and then vaccines. And then the vaccine kind of segues into the the severity, which means that if people got the virus, then the outcome would be less severe and then we have, you know, increases just over the last year, you know, we've had progress in terms of medical treatment and in terms of, um, you know, acquisitions of, um, you know, medications and medical equipment and things that are necessary. So there's been a lot of great strides there and each of those strides, you know, puts a dent in it in the long run. So the more that we have, you know, continued exposure prevention, which we talked about with the, you know, the hazard control methodology and then the vaccines, and then the, you know, the testing still plays into that in terms of, you know, having the situational awareness and the site picture. And then that transitions into the the vaccine and the medical treatment. So we can lower the frequency and severity to the point where it becomes safe to, to live without the face covers. And then the last step of that would be to live without the, you know, the social distancing. And then we'd at some point be back to where we were in December of 2019. But I, I couldn't say when that would be, you know, with any level of accuracy right now. I'm, Is it I, based on the idea? Do you guys base it on the idea of herd immunity? That that would be a better question for the, you know, for the epidemiology team. Um, in in my case, you know, like I said, I look at it, you know, battle to battle. So it, in in terms of prevention, if we can, if we can go from, you know, day to day and from, from milestone to milestone with with fewer people getting sick. And then those that do get sick, you know, less, less, you know, catastrophic outcomes, then, then we're doing better each time. And then eventually that'll lead to that point. But, uh, you know, where we get to the point where we have enough, enough immunity in society to where we can live without the mask and the distancing. Um, I couldn't say when that will be, but, um, that's what, that's what we have to get to. A lot of manufacturing is done in Asia and I've been there you know, travel there quite a bit, you know, for work and, you know, masks are much more of a normal thing there. It's uh, something society has become comfortable with and wearing. And uh, I tell people this and it's it's hard to believe, but when it first happened, uh, the name obviously Wuhan came up and uh, I saw Wuhan and it just rang a bell with me. And I was, I was thinking, is that the city I had a layover in, 11 hour layover in coming from Cambodia back to the United States. And, and I looked back and looked at my, my travel documents. And sure enough, September 27th of 2019, I was in Wuhan for half a day. And I made a cognizant decision at the last minute not to go into town. I stayed at the airport and I stayed at, I got a hotel room and, and took a nap instead by sheer, sheer miracle, because obviously it was already there then, it, it, you know, or probably was, you know, moving around Wuhan. And I sit back and I think about it and the, the chances I could have been patient zero scare me. I really could have been because it was that early and it was that at that point. And I was like, oh, whatever made me, you know, however tired I was, whatever decision I made, I'm glad I didn't go down there and do it. But um, but thank you. Um very much uh, for coming in and to um, sharing with us your expertise in this, you know, what happened. Um, the more we know, or I guess the more everyone knows, the more society knows, the more information they have, the more accurate information. 
I think we'll be better off. So I think it's important, um, you know, for people that do what you do to to share, you know, what's happened, what you think, and and why we are doing certain things. And for that, I thank you very much for for coming in and doing that. Um, I, I appreciate the invitation. I I hope it was helpful. Um, you know, like anything, there's there's a lot that there's a lot that I'm I work with, but I'm not. I'm not the person to to speak to you directly as far as, you know, epidemiology processes and whatnot, but uh, I can, I can attest that the people that do that are subject matter experts. They're very dedicated and very good at what they do. And everybody's definitely got, you know, the greater, the greater good in mind and just wants to, um, wants to see people well. So um, the more we can do that, you know, each of us plays our role in terms of exposure prevention and, and recovery from the pandemic. But uh I, um, yeah, hope, hope it was helpful. Appreciate it. It was. And, and personally for me to you, I, I real thank you for you and your team. And, um, you know, we, we owe you, you know, there's a reason we're still able to go to restaurants and, and there's a reason we're able to still go to our grocery store safely. And it was because of the work you guys did. And thank you very much for that. Um, thank, thank you all. It's a, it's certainly a person to person effort. You know, if everybody didn't take it to heart and, whether it's, you know, wearing the, wearing the face cover or keeping the six feet apart uh, like we are now, you know, or, uh, <laughs> or washing their hands, you know, um, and every, every business and every individual, it's, um, that's what makes it happen. And, uh, you know, as far as our, our, our team members and our coworkers, you know, each one of them is certainly, certainly pulled their weight plus some. So, um, I was actually just having that conversation yesterday with some of our team leaders on the incident command. And I said, you know, I can show up and provide all the recommendations in the world, but if y'all didn't implement those things and drive that culture so that each team member actively, you know, did things the safest way, then it really wouldn't matter what I do because there would still be a lot of exposures, you know, but the Gotta fact that there's through. not, I'm sorry? Gotta have follow through. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. The fact that there hasn't been is, um, is a testament to how diligent they are, you know? Well, thank you very much for stopping by and, um, That'll end us there. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.